Hello there members and anyone listening on the podcast, welcome back to our Salem Witch Trials. As we continue these monstrosities, I guess, in Salem. Um, and they are the Salem Witch Trials because we've already done the English ones. The next day, the witchcraft crisis claimed its first victim. After nine weeks in prison, Sarah Osborne died in the Boston jail on May the 10th. The Boston prison stood on Prison Lane, present-day Court Street. John Dunton, who wrote down his observations of the Boston jail in 1686, said, A prison is a grave of the living. Tis a house of meagre looks, ill smells, lice, drink, tobacco of the compound. Or, if you will, tis the suburbs of hell, and the persons much the same as there. Job Tukey would describe his ten weeks in Salem jail in 1682 in a similar fashion. It was almost poisoned with the stink of my own dung and the stink of the prison, having never so much a minute time to take the air since I came into this dulcome place. It must have been far worse ten years later when it was overcrowded with accused witches, including Tukey. In that cold dark and damp place. The stench of unwashed bodies, chamber pots, rotting food, vomit, dead vermin, would have made conditions almost unimaginable. Inmates were infested with fleas as well as lice that often carried deadly gel fever or, as we know it, typhus. As if this was not bad enough, prisoners were menaced and chained and had to reimburse the jailer for their room and board. Though she was only 49 at the time of her arrest, Osborne was bedridden. When questioned by Hathorne and Corwin, she had protested that she was more likely bewitched than a witch. Ordering a woman in such frail health into such a prison for a prolonged period was a death sentence. Four days later, May 14th, a new Massachusetts governor, William Phipps, arrived in Boston from England. The main native and Boston residents was ill-prepared to deal with the emergency he faced. By this time, 48 people had already been accused of witchcraft, and complaints would be sworn against eight more that day. Most of the accused were in jail. The two had been set free. Two had fled. Osborne had died. The new governor faced a witchcraft crisis of unprecedented proportions in the colony. The Salem witchcraft crisis could not have come at a worse time for Massachusetts temporarily lacked the legal system to deal with it. Phipps brought with him a new charter for Massachusetts Bay that invalidated all laws and courts in the colony and called for the legislature to pass a new set of laws and courts that were not repugnant, that is, in agreement with the laws of England. No trials had taken place in Massachusetts since the details of the charter had first reached the colony on February the 8th. The colony's elected legislature, the General Court, could establish a court, but it was not scheduled to meet until June the 8th. Phipps could not wait until then. He decided to act immediately to rein in the crisis, which was already threatening the stability of his new government. Indeed, accusations had increased dramatically since his arrival. 
William Phipps' response was to create a court of oya and termina, literally meaning to hear and determined in the old northern French, still used in English court terminology of the day, and to this day still heard in the United States in the phrase oyez, oyez, traditionally used to begin court proceedings. There was plenty of precedent for such emergency courts in both England and New England. Interestingly, Phipps made no mention of the witchcraft crisis when creating this court on May the 27th. Instead, he simply noted that there are many criminal offenders now in custody, somewhere off of Lane, along with many inconveniences attending the thronging of the jails. The jurisdiction was limited to just Suffolk, Essex and Middlesex counties. Governor Phipps may have deliberately left out the word witchcraft so the court could deal with any pressing matters that arose aside from the witchcraft trials. However, the omission of any mention of witchcraft was probably part of an effort to keep word of serious crisis from the English Crown. Upon his arrival in the colony, Phipps had penned a letter from the Privy Council. The English advisers to the king who helped oversee all colonies, in which he also neglected to mention witchcraft. He would not do so until he wrote his next letter then. That was October the 12th. The court of Oya and Termina was led by Deputy Governor William Stoughton, with the other judges being Bartholomew Gedney, John Richards, Nathaniel Saltonstall, Waite Winthrop, Samuel Sewell, John Hathorne, Jonathan Corwin, Peter Surgent. While none of the members of the court had legal training, they represented the elite of Massachusetts society. They were wealthy Puritan merchants and members of the Governor's Council, with years of experience in the general court, as well as service as local magistrates. Most were also high-ranking militia officers, leaders of the citizen-soldiers' army that defended the colony in times of trouble. Indeed, in July 1692, Governor Phipps was appointed with Winthrop to be commander-in-chief of the Massachusetts militia. Moreover, the judges and considerable knowledge of Salem and of the growing crisis, Corwin and Hawthorne, Hawthorne had conducted most of the preliminary court sessions. Five others had participated in at least one session. Phipps named Thomas Newton a prosecuting attorney for the court of Oyer and Termina. An English lawyer practising in Boston, Newton was no stranger to high-profile cases. The previous year, he had been the prosecutor for the special court of Oyer and Termina, called in New York to deal with the Leisler Rebellion, in which Jacob Leisler led the seizure of the government of the colony of New York from Edmund Andros in the walks of the Othero and imprisonment of Andros in Boston and the glorious revolution of 1688 in England. Those trials had accumulated with the conviction for treason and execution of Leisler and his son-in-law Jacob Milbourne. The Crown Attorney was responsible for organising the trials, including writing the indictments, determining the order in which people would be tried. Unlike today, the prosecutor did not question either the accused or the witness. That work was the responsibility of the judges. The accused had no counsel to defend them. Indeed, 
Massachusetts would not allow lawyers to practice for fees until 1705. The first official act of court of Oyer and Terminer was to order Essex County Sheriff George Corwin to canvass the towns of the county for 18 men for a grand jury to consider indictments and a pool of 48 honest and lawful men for trial juries. All three men voting citizens were eligible to serve on a jury. Under the old 1629 Charter, three men had to be members of the Puritan Church. However, this religious qualification was removed in the 1691 Charter, allowing any adult male property owner to be a full citizen of the colony. The 25-year-old, who was newly appointed as sheriff, had close ties to the judge. For Whit Winthrop and Jonathan Corwin were his uncles and Bartholomew Godney was his father-in-law. Much as today, the grand jury brought together by the sheriff would read bills of indictments, examine evidence and listen to oral testimony to determine whether the charges had enough weight to proceed to trial. If so, they would endorse the indictment with the phrase Billa Vera, meaning that the charges were valid and a true bill of indictment and being issued. During the Salem witch hunt, trials would proceed very quickly after a true bill of indictment was signed, often the same day. The case would be heard before a trial of jury of 12 people, called a trial jury of a petty jury, drawn from the pool of 48 potential jurors. How was the court to proceed given that? With the arrival of Phipps and the new charter, the colony technically had no legal code in place. The laws of the old charter had been repealed and the legislature had yet to meet to begin the long process of replacing them. No document laying out the rules of the court survives, though a close study of the court's subsequent actions suggests that it applied current English law. Indeed, its indictments often used language drawn specifically from England's Witchcraft Act of 1604, which called for the death penalty for anyone convicted of invoking evil spirits or a familiar of the devil. The judges also referred to several popular English legal treaties, including Richard Bernard's Guide to Grand Jury Men, 1627-1630, Michael Dalton's Country Justice, 1618, and Joseph Kebbell's An Assistance to Justices of the Peace, 1683, which included a chapter on conjuration. These guys gave specific advice on how to examine the evidence in a witchcraft trial. Traditionally, there were only two ways to convict a witch, by the witch's confession or upon the testimony of the two eyewitnesses in act of black magic. Lacking such direct proof, Kebble drew on a long English tradition of supporting evidence, particularly signs of the witches' familiars, devil's marks and other signs of satanic presence. Kebble also suggested that an accused witch's property should be searched for evidence of magic, potions, puppets, charms, spellbooks. Related writings were all useful supportive evidence. Such supplement evidence was usually in short supply. Hence, judges in witch trials often had to resort to other means, particularly the touch, test and spectral evidence. As regards to the former, it was believed that if a bewitched person touched the witch who was afflicting her, her sufferings would immediately ease. The test would be used extensively in Salem. However, the court would rely even more heavily on spectral evidence. 
how much weight should be given to the claim that a person was harmed by a spirit or spectre of a person when only the afflicted witness, well, they only see it, don't they? They see the manifestation of the invisible world. It was a hotly debated subject, though everyone in the 17th century believed the devil could create such harmful spectres. Furthermore, he tricked witches into believing that his powers were theirs, and of course, such powers were ultimately derived from God, for he created Satan. The devil could make mirror illusions, while only God could perform miracles, or as they would call it, miracula. Still, to no doubt, spectres was to question God's existence. The controversy came not over their existence, but over how to interpret them. Ministers warned that Satan was so powerful that he could create spectres of even unwitting and innocent people. When these spectres armed us, these poor people would be unfairly accused of witchcraft. Satan was indeed, as usual, the old trickster. And that's the next part of the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah, Satan seems to be everywhere at this era, these years. It was from, you know, it was in England, it was in America, it was, it was everywhere because those other witch trials we're going to get into after the Salem witch trials. It was everywhere, it was Satan. It was very, very busy in these years, very busy indeed. Although I have to be honest, and I'm just going to say this now, Satan would not have the time to mess with, with such petty things if he's down there in his fiery hell. I'm pretty sure he has more um, pressing matters to attend to than to be running around pretending to be people's ghosts and attacking people on witches' behalf. Just saying, seems a little bit out there, you know? Thank you for listening to this part of the Salem Witch Trials and many blessings.